0: Now, one of the things that's missing at the moment in the Australian election conversation is the arts and culture. At the moment, they're nowhere to be seen. The major parties haven't announced any arts policy to date. I'm somebody who believes that conversations around art and culture are critically important, clearly. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this radio program. But art goes beyond just what we see in galleries, what we see in concert halls, what we see on stages. Art connects with broader ideas of culture and we clearly need to have conversations about the future of the arts and culture in this country. Joining me on the line is Associate Professor Josephine Kost, who has written uh, a new paper for Currency House, part of the ongoing Platform Papers series. Uh, the paper is called Arts, Culture and Country and looks at some of the many issues facing the cultural sector in this country. Josephine, thanks for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure,
0: Richard. Now, one of the things that struck me, uh, just to begin with looking at this paper, was you looked at government support for the arts in the pandemic, but you also take a, a broader, more holistic view and acknowledging right from the onset, for example, that for the First Peoples of Australia, art and culture, identity and country are not separate, they're not broken out into different fiefdoms and silos that can be funded or defunded as the government of the day kind of wills, that art, culture, identity and country are intertwined and interdependent, in your words. Why is that an important place to begin this discussion?
1: Well, I think that um, we often see the arts, particularly in a Western framing, as something sort of peripheral and perhaps um, an elite activity. And in fact, arts practice has been here since um, humans have been around, and that has been um, illustrated by the the kind of um, incredible heritage work that's been discovered from our First Nations people. So there is always a connection between the human condition... Um, culture and arts and so they are um, as one in a sense and that's what is particular about the First Nations framing of it and what we should all recognise and adopt as our own framing.
0: Now, one of the areas you explore in this paper is the the lack of support provided by the government during the pandemic. Now, the federal government, the federal arts minister, has claimed that uh, millions of dollars went to support the sector, whether through the, uh, the Rise Fund uh, uh, or through JobKeeper. But As you note, and as many people working in the arts know, many, many artists were not eligible for JobKeeper.
1: Indeed. um, As you know, most, or many arts people, um, work on short-term contracts. And JobKeeper was designed for people who were in permanent employment. And what is characteristic of the arts is not permanent employment. The only people who tend to be in ongoing employment are are management. And so that's created a divide from the very outset where you have people in management roles receiving JobKeeper and the people who are the artists who are actually making the work not being eligible for JobKeeper and in some cases also not being eligible for JobSeeker. So uh, because the categories of musician and visual artist and so on are not um, official categories within the unemployment classification that job seeker uses so you're in a uh, many individuals were in a terrible situation and some of them are still really struggling
0: now why do you think (laughs) there has been such a lack of support for arts and culture from the current government particularly given the current crisis is this an ideological battle being waged against the arts
1: it could be seen that way. I mean, obviously, the coalition has not been um, particularly supportive. And, in fact, if you look at um, their response to arts education in particular, there seems to be an embedded view that um, arts education is not necessary uh, for the education and training of both young people and people who are then moving on to tertiary training. Uh, I think that's really a terrible tragedy. Um to take away arts training from um, the school sector and to belittle um, arts training at the tertiary level has been uh, a characteristic of the current government. And I find that really disturbing um, in its very reductionist approach to what the arts are about and what society is about. Uh, I guess it goes hand in hand with the bigger picture of seeing universities as only as training factories for perhaps the science and business world. But the, um, our society is much broader than that, and we must look at how uh, we ensure um, there are arts practitioners in the future. Um, if we don't um, ensure that, then our society will be bereft.
0: Now, the kind of lack of support for the arts has gone hand-in-hand hand with a lack of support for the, the public sector, public education uh, during the pandemic as well.
1: Indeed. Well, that, I think, was one of the characteristics of the response to um, the lockdown was the the, um, privileging of, say, private education providers over public, and yet public education providers are by far the largest providers in this country. So the university sector and the the public TAFE sector were not helped in any way during the lockdown period, whereas um, private providers such as um, international universities that are, have um, sites in Australia like Carnegie Mellon um, were given support, financial support. So, you know, it, it couldn't be more ridiculous in a sense that somebody who's coming to Australia to make money out of students is given further support and the um, backbone of our education system is ignored and, and diminished in that process.
0: Now, one of the things that we've seen and one of, and what you document in uh, arts, culture and country, the, the paper you've written for, plat- for Currency House, the latest platform paper, which is freely available to download, by the way, if people want to grab a copy, go to www.currencyhouse.org.au. But you talk about the way arts funding has been politicised. And we've seen uh, only just recently, for example, um, uh, an ex-New South Wales Arts Minister, who oversaw what can only be described as significant pork barrelling of arts funding, has now been appointed to the board of the Australia Council, which is a concerning sign, but would you also say that the, the politicisation of arts funding, of uh, the use of what was once arm's length government funding uh, into pet projects of, of ministers and so forth, is this something that we should all be concerned about?
1: indeed uh, I think uh I mean it's been very concerning how the coalition government um both at um federal level and at state level in New South Wales in particular, have normalized uh the routing of um, of grants both in the arts and and in community and sports sectors and um it's really uh disappointing because uh, and, and uh, really in conflict with the notion of a democracy. The uh, the arts require knowledge and skill and um, the people who assess grants should have that the same sort of knowledge and skills. It seems that there is, uh, one, a view that um, making decisions about the arts doesn't require any specialised knowledge and, secondly, that um, ministers can just preference the kind of activities that they want to preference and of course focus on marginal seats and so on and that's just such a um, uh, really um, uh, a terrible way of seeing um, how governments should be involved with the arts uh, and we've seen that happen under George Brandis then um, Mitch Fifield, and now um, Paul Fletcher have all use it, uh, arts funding as a means of um, promoting their own um, interests and it's really not appropriate.
0: What we've also seen is a corporatisation of the arts sector, which you flagged earlier uh, as uh, the the managerial class in the arts uh, retained work during the worst of the pandemic, particularly at some of the, the larger companies, uh, where and the artists yeah. didn't. But we've also seen that corporatisation of the arts extend into boards, and picking up on what you just said, that the arts require specialist knowledge and skill, uh, too often too many board members in arts organisations organizations come from the corporate sector from the finance sector they don't have that specialist arts knowledge what kind of damage is that causing is it is it kind of echoing and amplifying the damage being uh, being wrought by government
1: well indeed it's it's been um, endemic in the arts since um, the 90s essentially that board members of arts organizations should um, represent Various skills called you know such as advertising finance law, lawyers and so on uh, and that has become sort of normalized and so that uh, when you think of the governance of an arts organisation, you think of bringing in people with these these kind of skills. But this framing has really basically been an adoption from the corporate world. And if you think about the corporate world, the bottom line there is always about making money and also risk minimization. When you think about arts practice, you're thinking about taking risk and trying something new and and looking at a completely different approach to all sorts of activities. So, the nature of the arts and the nature of the corporate world are actually oppositional. So, to then put um, uh, corporate people who bring that culture, uh, the very bottom line culture to the arts, has been hugely problematic. And it doesn't work, and it's like you've got two opposing forces in the same room. On top of that, the Australia Council, um, in recent years, has adopted this this, this um, mantra that those who are coming in from the outside, those who are coming from the corporate world or wherever, are skilled people, and those from the arts are unskilled. Now, that's absolutely bizarre in the extreme that the people who make the art are unskilled. Of course they're not. They are the skilled people in the room, the knowledgeable people in the room. So this is really uh, something that has to be addressed in terms of how you make sure that the running of an arts organisation is is fit for purpose.
0: Now, one of uh, your... I guess to uh, stitch these different threads of conversation together, one of the things that uh, that you propose as a a solution for many of these issues collectively is the creation of a federal ministry of culture that would integrate the the function spread across different departments uh, and that would operate arts funding, whether for First Nations arts and heritage, for libraries and galleries, for small to medium arts organisations and individual artists, etc. With... um, uh, a strict arm's length and peer-reviewed process. Talk to us about why a federal ministry of culture operating in tandem with the Australia Council, which we already have, why do you believe this would be a valuable solution to some of the issues that you have uh, clearly and summarised in this platform paper?
1: Well, Richard, I think um, what we have seen, particularly over the last... Um, for years is that the arts have been disappeared into other government departments uh, and in particular at the moment they don't even get a mention in the title of the department so you have no idea where the arts are or where they belong. Uh, So I've been thinking seriously about this for a long time, obviously, um, as many of us have. And so I've been thinking, well, maybe what you must do is create a critical mass within the political framework. And the way to do that is bring all of the various agencies and activities together in one space and create the Ministry of Culture. And that, that ministry would then have much more Power and influence within the political framework than they currently have when they're dispersed through different departments. While the notion of a ministry for culture is frightening to people because it seems like it to um, reflect the notion of a, a, a ministry of control or something or information control, as in say Eastern Bloc countries and, uh, um, of some time ago. The Um, the reality is that if you have that focus and concentration, you you develop um, knowledge and specialised people within that group who can really make the arguments and um, also um, provide um, the interactions between each other that are incredibly important. Obviously, bringing broadcasting into that, public broadcasting into that agency is critical because... That is a huge area of cultural activity in this nation. So I think it would um, really strengthen um, the voice of culture and arts within the political framing.
0: And so you would then see a, a Ministry for Culture coordinating the big-picture, top-down arts approach with the Australia Council what working off to the side, supported by the Ministry to support individual artists and small-to-medium organisations?
1: Yes, uh, uh, perhaps it's a a pragmatic um, response to some of the things that have been happening over the last several years. But what we have seen at the Australia Council over many years now is that more than 50% of the funding is going to the large organisations. Now, while that... um, it can be disputed in many ways in terms of um, the best practice. The difficulty with that is that it doesn't appear to will it ever change. So my suggestion is that we should accept that many of the large organisations represent cultural heritage and, be, and should be direct line funded from a ministry um, so that a body such as the Australia Council can concentrate on contemporary arts practice And really um, focus on developing artists, developing new arts practices, supporting existing and emerging artists and so on. So that's why I think we need to um, consider how we can do the best thing by the arts rather than um, argue from, say, a political point of view or whatever that um, polarizes different perspectives.
0: Are you hopeful that uh, whichever government is elected uh, in next month's uh, federal election will listen to some of these recommendations that you've put forward in this platform paper?
1: Well, of course, I'm an optimist. Uh, and uh, one has to stay an optimist if you're working in the arts, I think. But um, the um, I, at the moment, we there's no evidence, of course, that... Um, any of the parties have an arts policy, although we'll probably see the Labor Party and the Greens um, show one soon. Uh, the Coalition's policy is, is will not be um, overt, but we've seen the evidence of how what their priorities are over the last seven years. So I think that... Or eight years. I think that um, what we all must do is really... Um, our local members and candidates and say that we must see change in terms of how the arts are supported in the future Uh, because it's been devastating. The last three years have been devastating, and we know that. Never mind the the last 20 years where we've seen a 20% reduction in funding overall, while at the same time the population has tremendously um, increased and, and also is far more diverse. So really, we've all got no choice, but we must um, somehow bring about change and insist that our politicians take the arts and culture seriously.
0: Arts, Culture and Country, the latest platform paper from Currency House by uh, Josephine Korst is available as a free download at www.currencyhouse.org.au. If you're interested in the conversation around arts and culture in this country and the connection between country and culture, I definitely recommend you go to currencyhouse.org.au and download a copy. Joe, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning.
1: It was a pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Triple R.
0: Time for us to talk comedy. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is in full swing. Chris Ryan joins me in the studio now. Chris has a show called Can't Complain, which, given that you were nominated for Best Newcomer at the festival last year here in Melbourne and won Best Newcomer in Sydney uh, not so long ago, I guess you can't complain, although... What was the article you wrote for ArtsUp? Something about an overnight success after <laughs> nine years, years yeah, ten no, years of yeah, work? Yeah,
2: pretty much. Um, thanks for having me, Richard. I, I guess the show is called Can't Complain because everyone I've spoken to for the last couple of years, uh, even though we've all had problems, we find ourselves going, oh, but, you know, I can't complain. And it's just annoying. It's like, no, you can and just go on ahead, you know, just commit. Um, I, I can and pretty much I do for a whole hour, um, you know, in the show. <laughs>
0: So I'm fascinated to to think about kind of you and comedy as... uh, Because you used to be a journalist. Yeah. How the hell did you go... Because journalism is not a particularly funny profession. How did you go from journalism to stand-up comedy? I
2: do like to... um, I like people. I like talking to people. It's not just the journalism, though. It was was also... Like, I like to be on stage. I used to sing in a band and, you know, I was always in shows in school and stuff. So um, interacting with people... Uh, crowd work that kind of stuff that was all part of the journey I think of getting to comedy um and so yeah from journalism to comedy I mean it wasn't like an overnight thing as you know it was just like I I started comedy about 10 years ago and then just kept doing more of it and then eventually went no I'll just do this you know and be poor yeah
1: yeah
0: <laughs> now one of the reasons I'm fascinated by kind of this this arc of your life is uh I'm a journalist and I've I'm like, every now and again, I'm like, maybe there's something else I could be doing. But then I go, no, I'm kind of good at what I do. Mm. Was there a sense for you that journalism. That I wasn't good? Well, no. <laughs> or just a sense of frustration and limitation going, there has to be more than this.
2: Oh, absolutely. I get that oh, almost every 15 minutes, Richard. Like, honestly. Um,
0: Except when you're on stage. For uh, yeah, generally. exactly.
2: And that's the point. Like, it's only on stage that you're actually in it and living that moment that everyone tells you you have to be living. Uh, and when you find that, you're like, oh, well, I've got to keep doing this then, you know. Um, I think with journalism, like I worked for small town regional newspapers for a while and I loved it. It was the best. I had a great editor. I had a great team. We would loved doing what we did. But I knew there was no sense of progress. Like I would have to wait for the editor to die or I'd have to move even further away from anyone I knew, you know, and it just would have to go on forever until I reached, you know, some kind of career progress. And so I just, I was impatient, And I have a short attention span. (laughs) So I I created a career out of communications for about 20 years, worked for myself, doing consultancy to, you know, government and business, doing comms things, you know, media stuff, events, that kind of thing, production management. And then eventually just just committed to the comedy, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Now... You're from Canberra. Mm. Uh, well, you are now from Canberra. Uh, what's the comedy scene like in Canberra? I have the impression that you actually had to help build a comedy scene in order to create places for yourself to perform and supportive environment.
2: Absolutely, there is a, there is a great comedy scene in Canberra. It is not well known enough yet, um, but there are brilliant comedians come out of Canberra. Like Emma Holland came from Canberra, Frankie McNair, um, Maddie Weeks. You know, there are. Uh, Nick Shuler, who's in Comedy Zone this year, is from Canberra. Um, Canberra audiences are very smart audiences. They uh, they embrace comedy and they like it to be challenging and interesting. We had a a long-term comedy club called the Civic Pub Comedy Club. It just closed down this year. Unfortunately, they put poker machines in the space where the comedy was held for 10 years, um, and that was 11 years, that was the best club. But they're going to move it. They're going to have a new room, uh, 200 capacity one, that they'll start running, the comedy ACT boys. Um, And, yeah, I I would run clubs. So I I opened a few rooms and um, just... And I actually ended up teaching a couple of comedy courses which I never would have done in my life had COVID not hit and the Tuggerdong Arts Centre asked me to run them. So I did and it brought sort of new people my age to the scene that might not have come through the traditional channels. And, uh, yeah, I think the scene is burgeoning and it's diversifying and it's great.
0: Now, you've just kind of tangentially mentioned your age there. Mm. It's one of the things that I loved about your show last year. Uh, Newcomers are often, I don't know, in their early 20s, for example. They don't necessarily have life experience. I was watching, uh, when I saw your show last year, Uh, I don't know your age. I think you're about 40. I'm 48. 48, Mm. okay. Um, And so watching somebody with life experience, with kids, with a family, kind of bringing such a different perspective and a voice that was not being heard or not represented by a lot of comedy was a delight.
2: Thanks, Richard. I I I agree because I, I like to hear people who have had pain and and you know lo- like real experiences in their lives because I that interests me. Um I, I'm going to be mean and say I got a terrible review from, from last year from from a bloke from The Age who was um, – I think one of the things he said was there's plenty of um, older comic comics that have been doing it longer and so they're saying all that stuff, we don't need her to say it kind of thing. That was my interpretation of his words. And I just think actually, no, there's so many young people doing comedy. You can have as many people from as many walks of life. There's room for all of us. And... Um, and I don't necessarily do the, the the mother-kids stuff a lot. You know, that's not really been my so – I'm interested – I've got a broad-ranging mind that covers a lot of topics. You know, I'm, just because I am a mother and 48 uh, doesn't mean that's all I sort of talk about. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, that would be limiting, mm. hugely limiting mm. and – what do you talk about, particularly in the new show? Let's talk about Can't Complain and what people can expect if they come to see it at uh, the Melbourne Town Hall in the Portico Room.
2: Yeah, look, it's a show born of the last two years, so it's, or the last year essentially, which is essentially a year where I've been housebound. The people I've seen are those nearest and dearest to me and if I'm lucky, a trip up to the local shops or down the coast to see my mum and dad. That's the environment this show has been written in. So I've done a lot of internal Uh, I've been looking at myself and why my brain works the way it does and also my dad wrote a memoir and no one asked him to. So that is the context within which this this story has been written. Um, So, yeah, it's it's, uh, having a look at what my dad, what I've learnt from a dad through reading his memoirs and contrasting that with my kind of very different brain.
0: How does your brain work? How do comedians' brains work in a different way to I don't know radio broadcasters here at Triple R, for example? Because certainly uh, I get the impression, for, like, who did I see just the other week? Uh, Frankie McNair, who mm. you mentioned, yep. um, said at, at one point in her show, "If you want to date me, that's a red flag." Kind of yeah, like totally. you shouldn't date comedians. Our brains are all screwed up. Yeah, um, and there's certainly. Conversations with comedians I've had, there's lots of comedians who talk about mental illness, depression, anxiety, those kind of struggles. And I wonder, is there something about... A comedian's brain, the unique wiring of your brain, and the unique which gives you a unique perspective of the world, which then also means comedians are more at risk of kind of some of the the downsides of that unique perspective.
2: I can only speak really to myself and some of my friends. There's plenty of comedians who'll say, "No, I'm normal. It's fine." Like Luke (laughs) Heggie, he'll (laughs) say that. Um, But I think there's a vulnerability and also a need to express yourself. That seems to be something that's present in a lot of comedians. Um, Also when there's pain in life as a normal human being, you're like, oh, that's rubbish, I don't want that. But in a comedian's life, it's like, there's pain, I don't want that, but I'll just take a note um, because that'll turn into something good, you know. So it's always an opportunity to turn... Pain is the best source of comedy. And traditionally, we're the jesters of the court, you know. We can can speak to the king and tell the truth and it can be uh, ugly or scary and we could die for it, but... Um, you know, not in this world, really.
0: Uh, I've seen plenty of comedians die on stage. but no, yes, yeah, Not literally. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I think the pain is less scary. I think we try, in my personal experience, I try and make whatever rubbish things are going on in the world and in my life, I put them out there so that people can see um, that it, you get over it, you can get over it, and it'll be okay. Oh, that's that's my motivation. It might be very boring and earnest, but that's actually where I come from.
0: And that's mining your own pain. What mm. about other people's lives? You mentioned your dad's memoir, for example. Where do you – when do you – do you know when to stop? Do you know when to go, oh, that's not my story, I can't tell it?
2: Oh, yeah. Look, well, I've got my own compass, my own moral compass. I'm always probably too empathetic with others, if anything. Um, I, sometimes I think I should go harder, but um, – yeah, I, I I tell my I am always the butt of the joke. That's how I that's how how I roll. Um, and I just think it's lovely to look at people's vulnerabilities. Um, we're all so pathetic. Um, it's funny, you know. Like, and but also beautiful in our patheticness. It's kind of lovely. <laughs> I yeah. don't mind.
0: Is it healthy always being the butt of the joke? That's something that um, Hannah Gadsby explored yeah. in The Net, for example. Mm,
2: I agree. It is a it's a challenge, and sometimes. You kind of have to have a little bit of toughness as well. You can't just be all, oh, woe is me, poor me, look how pathetic I am. Otherwise, that's not a good show. So, yeah, you have to still be on the attack for people who deserve it.
0: (laughs) Now, you mentioned Luke Heggie earlier, who I know has been supportive to you as a mate, as a friend, as a bit of a mentor. How supportive is the comedy kind of network? Because when I see a group of comedians sitting in a room together, they always seem to be competing with who can... Issue the funniest one-liner in it. Not even when they're on stage, just in a conversation. <laughs> so there is a sense of competition there, but there does also seem to be kind of a real kind of community and network, a, a sense of rapport and support.
2: Oh, I reckon it's the best, Richard. I, I have the best time with these people. Like uh, you pick the people that you love, and um, and the people you surround yourself with. Like it, there's gut laughs. There's No holds barred bitching. You know, there's just release of tension. (laughs) There's there's truth telling of how utterly mental you feel, you know, how like you just feel like, why am I even doing this, you know, from one day? And then you'll go from that and then an hour later you'll get a phone call for a gig and you'll think, oh, I'm I'm the best at everything, oh, this is incredible. But you share that entire ludicrous ride with these people who are like children. My child came down from Canberra to visit for the first time in Melbourne, they're 16, and um, they came to a gig and sat behind stage with me whilst we had people like Harley Breen and David Quirk tooling around, being hilarious and... Uh, my child just went, they're like fun uncles, they're funcles, you know, and and they said, like, y- you're just like my friends at high school, like you're just tooling around. And I was like, this is why I love this job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, the job's taken you to some interesting places, including the Middle East, to perform to Australian troops, I believe. Yeah,
2: that was crazy. That was back in about 2019. Um, again, Heggie sort of said I should have a crack at that and it was – an extraordinary experience. I went over with a wonderful band from Adelaide called the babes who are now my like best mates in Adelaide. Um, and we, and, and with, uh, Adam Rosenbachs and, uh, Limo and we, and, and Cam, Cam Knight we just did comedy, comedy in the dust and outside to terrifying looking men and, and lots of lovely terrifying looking women, um, and others. Uh, and it was challenging. Um, it was, to say the least, and very hot. There's just not enough water on the earth to consume
0: in those places. Were you worried that – because these are people who are living on the edge, mm. kind of, uh, and so I'm not necessarily expecting that they were going to kind of like, kind of physically uh, attack you, but it, they must have been an emotionally weird oh, audience was, to, to perform
2: to. absolutely a weird gig because not only do you have, like, people, as you say – Confronted with literally war or peacekeeping, you know, and very strict environments, but also as comedians, you get briefed with the HR. Like, don't you know we're we're an inclusive, we're an inclusive, and you know, non abusive. You know, don't mention this, this, and this. Be very don't swear if you can. I'm like, don't swear. They're soldiers. <laughs> you know, like it's so. It was bizarre. <laughs>
0: Chris Ryan is performing as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival with a, a new show called Can't Complain through until Sunday, the 24th of March. What have audiences been like? I mean, Melbourne's lockdown experience was very different to Canberra's, very different to Sydney's, et cetera. Yeah. Um, have you had the sense that Melbourne audiences are slightly shell-shocked or...?
2: I must say, I, I I think I do. I don't have a lot of experience. This is only my second full Melbourne. Um, this is my first full run at Melbourne, um, the second time here doing a solo... I do feel like I I I feel like there is a little bit of reticence there's a little bit of I don't know they're just tentative I feel like uh I don't know maybe it's just me but yeah there, there's a little bit of um that but uh when it gets going it's real good
0: Chris Ryan's Can't Complain part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. You can catch her in the Portico Room at Melbourne Town Hall until Sunday the 24th of April at 6:20 p.m., 5:20 p.m. on Sundays. Tickets from 20 to 25 bucks and bookings at au. Chris just before I let you go, anybody you want to plug any other shows you would recommend?
2: Oh I mean, Luke Heggie's show is always brilliant. It will eviscerate middle Australia, and you have to hear what he has to say. Um, and uh, uh, Michelle Brazier's, obviously, um, her new one is going to be a cracker.
0: Two recommendations. Check them out. Chris Ryan, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Richard. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Damien Callinan is performing a Melbourne International Comedy Feature Show called Double Feature. Damien, welcome. Thanks for having me, Richard. So, one of the reasons I was really keen to see this show right from the outset is having seen quite a bit of your stand-up comedy over the last quite a few years, mm. uh, is that I know that not only would I get a good laugh but I'd get a good story as well. There's a real sense for me that so much of your your comedy is connected with storytelling and character.
3: Yeah, I think over time I'm, I'm just more drawn to story than individual riffing. Um, and I love getting up on stage and, you know, improvising with a crowd, and, but I've, I certainly find writing so much easier when I've got a story to lean in and, on. Um, and whether that be a fictional story that I create or... Um, it 's usually based on there 's truth in it, like my World War one diary show was based on a fictional diary, but all the research and everything that went into it was true and it was and it was based on a uh, real photograph and fo- family folklore so I find reality um, and real stories just much more compelling to write about uh, and I find it much much easier to write like i can't i really can 't sit down and just write an hour of comedy and I can write jokes, individual, but the the idea of I would just kind of get bored with myself after ten minutes to start looking out the window. So I can only imagine what the audience would do.
0: So for this new show, uh, instead of uh, I don't know writing about a fictional soldier in World War One, mm. you've jumped forward to the kind of World War Two and afterwards, and you've written about your mum and dad.
3: I have, yeah. So, well, weird that I mentioned World War One diary because this is yeah, it's based on a real diary. Um, We found – my father passed away about three years ago and Mum had passed away eight years prior to that. And on the night of Dad's funeral, we found this um, small little, almost like a pamphlet-sized diary and flicked through it and realised it was in Mum's hand. And none of us knew the existence of it and it soon became apparent that this was written in situ in 1946, which just happened to be the year that they got together. And – It was a fascinating evening because it was was just my siblings and our partners by this stage and I started to read it and the young version of our parents materialised I us and stories that we'd never heard because, as you know, with the generation, they tend to kind of just have touchstone stories. They go, oh, this is how we met, this is our first date. And so we'd heard all of those but this was all fresh material. And in the context of Dad's passing... Um, and it kind of—it's impossible to talk about this without the kind of full story. In that mum's passing was incredibly tragic. My father accidentally ran her over, and so we'd spent eight years kind of nurturing him through that. And he was incredibly stoic and brave through it all. But um, his passing then kind of allowed us to grieve mum again. Because we hadn't, particularly in the last few years when dementia started to kick in, he was, he started to ask questions about her and, you know, wondered what had happened. He heard there might have been an accident. So it was quite fraught. So this diary was an incredible emotional release for all of us. And in the back of my head, I said, I think there's a story in there
0: not only an incredible emotional release, but as you say, an incredible kind of doorway into your parents' lives when they were so much younger, stories, as you said, that you haven't heard before, and life in Melbourne after the war, kind of a completely different era. Yeah. Was it frightening to step through that doorway when it opened because it strikes me that you're mining something deeply personal, not just personal for you, but personal for the whole family. Yeah. Uh, And were there any concerns there about entering that world and bringing it to life and and taking a sense of ownership of those stories?
3: Not really. I mean, because we all shared the discovery simultaneously, um, I could tell that my family were equally overjoyed by its existence. And... That it was bringing them, in a, in a sense, bring them back to life. And this, and as you say, this very different version. Just you know, to hear your nineteen year old mother speak, you can still hear her, but it's she's a you know she's barely a, out of teenagehood. She's you know going out with the girls, and and as you know, you discover in the show, she uh, she had quite a lot of guys on the go. She was a young young woman, and the, in this period of hope, you know, like um, straight after World War Two, and there's a real optimism in the diary. Uh, despite what they'd gone through and what she'd personally gone through, as I allude to in the show, she lost a boyfriend in the war, and so I don't know. No, I certainly never. I never felt any. I felt an obligation to tell the story well, but I didn't feel like I was being. I was intruding on something.
0: Now that notion of discovering that your mum had multiple boyfriends <laughs> on the go was was that a shock, or was that kind of like oh good honour?
3: Uh, there was a bit of good honour. Like we we all knew mum was a very attractive woman and. Um, and it's all very innocent, you know, as, as dating was in those days. But there's one particular guy in the, in the story who's putting the hard word on <laughs> fairly regularly <laughs> who she describes as being a member of the Wandering Hand Society. So you've got a little bit of an insight into kind of raw human uh, relations. But, you know, she's an innocent young Catholic girl from Preston, so she's not revealing too much. And she was a very politic woman. She was never she never said a bad word about people. You can hear the restraint in her voice at different times, um which is quite delightful. That you know, and that lives right through, you know, from so great hearing it as a teenager that she wasn't just like dissing on people and <laughs> It, having seen the show, one of the things that delighted me one is uh,
0: the fact that I love that that period in Australian history when uh, kind of after the war, the advent of modernism, the changes that were yep. happening in society and culture, and all those things. So that's brought to life. And also the the I guess the the fact that we kind of have this old this expectation that people in those days were they were old-fashioned because they were old times. And so you think, oh, people dated once and got married immediately or something like that. To be reminded that, no, that's not how people were. Yes, of course they'd go out. Like you might go dancing three nights a week. You might take three different fellas to three different dances. It was a lovely eye-opening reminder that our our view of the past uh, is often a very inaccurate one.
3: No, you're right. And, you know, this is the... This is the era of the dance card too, literally where they'd, you know, line up and sign on guys for the night and you get the Foxtrot, yes, you get the Waltz. Yeah, you get the Palmerston. Um so oh yeah, I agree. I think it's delightful to to, to think of and it's always difficult with your parents, but to think of them as those, you know and I, even myself, what was I like nineteen? Like I was a bit of a dickhead, I think. Uh, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was kinda of thrashing treasure and Sporting Robert Smith haircuts. But uh yes, I don't know. It's um it's really it's really lovely capturing that moment. And it's the generation that's just going, you know, like mum's best friend um passed away just before New Year's and was kind of the last person I could really talk to apart from my aunt about the incidents in the diary. But I'm getting the generation just below it, you know, who are coming or their elder even their elder siblings and it's been really lovely having Old contacts, mum and dads, and their kids come along. Um, Yeah, you you feel like you're lighting a spark on a period of history and very specific social history too that's that's almost gone.
0: Yeah. I mean... Is there a point creating this show and performing the show in particular? Does it ever start to get away from you that you that in the sense that it stops being a family story and it becomes a show? It becomes something that you have created yeah. for with that the its origins start to blur and what it is has been shaped into starts to take over.
3: Well, I mean, in a sense, it has to. Otherwise, it becomes just telling family stories and other people aren't connected. So, I've made an effort to. Make the stories as relatable as possible, and and even though there's some you know Easter eggs in there for my family, um, that there, there has to be that shift to to draw as as many people into the story as possible, and but you can do that by being really specific too. I think people and audiences respond really to the detail in the show, the mentioning of you know our Lady Help of Christians in East Brunswick and the Victorian Catholic Lawn Tennis Association, and I had. There's a, there's a couple of jokes about the Victorian Catholic Lord Ten Association in the show, and two nights ago, two rows of people from the VCLTA came. Who knew <laughs> they even existed? Um, so there's a spec, spec, specificity that, um, that is, is in there. But I never lose sight of the, the heart of the story, and you know, as soon as I get to the more emotional parts, because I, I draw on my father's retirement diaries as, as well. It becomes a split narrative. Um, and when I get to those stories... I deliberately have drawn my own personal response into that so that it humanizes it I think and I'll you know I've done a lot of emotional shows before and I you, you never get to those bits and they become passe they they still draw you into that moment and that's part of the craft of performing it to not not lose it but um to remain to let the emotion sit so the audience feel it and feel the reality.
0: Because um, if you did lose that, it, you would probably lose the audience as well because it, it would become a stilted show rather than yeah. something alive and, and responsive. Absolutely,
3: yeah. And you can see this, this because it's a very intimate venue and intimate show, and I can see when I'm talking about the grief, you can see people nodding and, you know, shaking their heads in in shared grief. You know, and so many, so many people have, well, we've all got grief in our lives, but parental grief, and um, and it's really fascinating watching that, watching the, the story, my personal story resonate on t- to individuals, you know, in real time. It's quite a, it's a real gift, really, to have that response from an audience.
0: Now, Damien, you were struck out by COVID, kind of uh, yeah. just early, quite early in the run. Obviously, the the festival uh, is. <laughs> I've seen at least another several other comedians going. Yep, cancelled this show, cancelled these dates. What impact does that have on on the the creation and the performance of the show? It's such a new show. You must have been just really been getting into a routine, and then you had to step out of
3: it for a week. Yes, I was into my. I'd done three shows, which was enough to have a handle on it. Like I, I remember that last show, thinking, okay, the show's there, you know. so at least I had that. I didn't, you know. It would have been worse if it happened just before opening night. I think. So at least I had a run up. But it's frustrating though because you, you've got it, you've got the show singing and you've got a break. Um, but as a you know independently produced show, it's financially devastating. Like you, all, we lost a week of sales that you don't know if they come back or not. You know. So. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of implications. It's made it all the sweeter coming back, though, I must I say. I can the, imagine, the yes. The last couple of sh- – I've done two shows in now, and, I, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And what's the
0: sense from the audience as well? Because uh, talking to Chris Ryan earlier, I asked whether she felt that Melbourne audiences had been, were slightly shell-shocked com- compared to audiences yeah. in other cities. Have you picked up any sense of – are people just going, oh, thank God we can go out again?
3: look i've I'm getting really good houses, but I think the show has um, attracted an audience that may not normally come to shows um it it's got a lot of reach, so I did conversations with Richard Feidler and uh, it's kind of brought people to the show that I don't think would normally come to comedy festival shows so i'm getting it's it's very hard to judge my show on um because they're they're really responding beautifully to the story and i I can't say there's any noticeable reticence um well, it comes back to what i was saying earlier
0: about you being a great storyteller people may have seen the film the merger for example which grew out of a comedy festival show yeah. uh so that presumably is bringing in an additional audience for you as well
3: yeah yeah and i think i think people do respond to the storytelling and it's a real the real visceral response at the end of the show as people kind of like prize themselves out of their seats even though it leads toward tragedy it, I've tried to create an uplifting feeling and you're left with the love story. And um, and everyone loves a love story. Yeah. Uh,
0: one of the other things that struck me about performing it is your mum's voice is literally kind of uh, part of the show, not recordings of her voice. You've got the, the Melbourne actor Emily Tomlin's kind yeah. of... But bringing her words to life.
3: Yeah. And she does she does such a lovely job, Emily. I mean, she's one of my favourite actors and also... Um, there's familial connection. Her partner, Marcel Dorney, is my cousin. So I've tried – there's a lot of that in the show, as you would have seen. There's a lot of – you know, we use Kathleen's great-grandchildren to do some of the artwork. and um, But, yeah, I think having her voice in the room really helps. And and it's really lovely hearing this. I'm, I'm, this has surprised me, actually, people really writing the diary, like, going, ooh, reacting when Ron Rogan tries to kiss her and – you know, when her boss steals her pencil, just kind of—they're really getting into the micro of the diary, and I've left the micro in there. Like, that. I think that's what makes it feel more real—the the revelations of a 19-year-old as she describes unpacking the big box at work of uh, gifts, and then getting given soap by her boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> There's
0: a lot in it that resonates. It's a lovely, warm, rich, sad. Show double feature by Damien Callanan, written and performed by part of the Comedy Festival, on now at the Greek Centre in Lonsdale Street in the city until the twenty fourth of March. Bookings at comedyfestival.com.au. Damien, thanks heaps for coming in. Thanks for having me, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.